0: And back over to now for our third section, which is um, slightly separate but obviously related to our world topic, of apologetics in 3D.
1: Uh, indeed. Here's, here's a link. I'm, I'm currently reading uh, Alison McGrath's very readable biography of C.S. Lewis, A Life, uh, in which uh, I came across reading it last night here. Um, he's got on to talk about Lewis's Christian apologetics, and he says, um, apologetics, the business of identifying understanding and answering concerns and difficulties that ordinary people have about the Christian faith, and also demonstrating its power to explain things and satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. And that resonates uh, very much, that description of apologetics from McGrath, Uh, and you'll see I quote him a couple of times in the course of this lecture as well, of, of, of trying to give Uh, A framework of understanding what's going on in apologetics that's slightly broader than the usual sort of narrow focus on the uh, argumentation and evidence side of things, although I am in no way uh, dissing uh, that side of things. That's a necessary uh, condition of what apologetics is, I think, biblically speaking. Uh, but not sufficient. Um, So you may think that only a philosopher can really get excited about defining things, but I hope that uh, you'll find the framework that I'm providing in this talk, um, some things you may have come across before, um, but perhaps uh, you haven't come across the way of sort of arranging these thoughts uh, into the particular framework that I give for approaching apologetics. And it's also a framework that I found very useful in approaching things like thinking about discipleship, thinking about Bible study, preaching, um, engaging in film analysis from a Christian viewpoint. I find it quite a fruitful um, a heuristic, as a scientist would say, uh, for engaging uh, with things. And you'll see why I call it apologetics in 3D as we go on. Um, this is the death mask of Blaise Pascal, a 17th century uh, Catholic thinker. And uh, in his pensées his thoughts, notes for a, a never-written apologetics book, uh, for, uh, 46, order. Men despise religion, they hate it, and are afraid it might be true. To cure that, we have to begin by showing that religion is not contrary to reason, that it is worthy of veneration, and should be given respect, unlike the new atheist against respect for religion Uh, next it should be made lovable should make the good wish it were true and then show that it is indeed true and then he adds the notes uh, worthy of veneration because it has properly understood mankind and worthy of affection because it promises the true good but you see here how Pascal thinking about defending Christianity um, yes he's thinking about showing that it is true but he is also thinking about engaging the, the audience of apologetics, as it were, as whole people. As people with uh, desires and fears uh, and so on. Uh, and not letting that slip out of thinking about apologetics. So it just becomes a subject that's all about the arguments. So uh, I'm going to... This is uh, Raphael's painting of uh, St Paul in Athens. And no doubt uh, this female figure here must be Damaris, I think. Uh, Raphael, his uh, red Acts, chapter 17. Uh, Kenneth Boer, in uh, introducing the Apologetics Study Bible, says that there's a a complexity, there's a problem in defining apologetics. Uh, A diversity of approaches has been taken to defining the meaning, the scope, the purpose of uh, apologetics. Apologetics. The word itself, of course, comes uh, from the ancient Greek used uh, by uh, 1 Peter 3.15, for example, where it says, always be prepared to give an answer. The word being translated here as answer is uh, apologia, uh, which was a term from the legal system, from the law courts, what your defence lawyer does when he gets up and makes a defence speech on your behalf in the court system. Give an apologia, reasoned defence speech. To everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And again, from Peter, yes, it's about argument and defence, but it's also about as much about how you're doing this—gentleness uh, and respect. And, and you know, I'm told by some commentators that the word for "gentleness" there is to do with engaging your audience. And respect has to do with out of respect for God, whose ambassador you're being in this situation, you defend Him, but with an attitude of, of gentleness towards those who are asking questions of you. Um, sometimes you will come across the um, whole, does apologetics work? You know, you can't argue people into the kingdom of God, can you? Um, well, uh, in a sense, you know, you know what that's going on about. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. I think you can't half make it thirsty. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, apologetics does uh, work at the risk of blowing our own trumpet. Just consider this one piece of testimony from a, a student in Venezuela who wrote to me some time ago, sent me an email, in which she said As a graduate student of philosophy, I'm an eager reader of your books and online articles, which have been instrumental in my rejection of agnosticism and naturalism and have contributed strongly to making me a newborn Christian. She goes on to describe how she's been taking some of my uh, books and articles into her philosophy discussions at university and has made some open-minded agnostics and atheists rethink their views on morality and meaning under naturalism, the reasonability of intelligent design, the possibility or even probability of God's existence. So thanks very much for that. So um, it does work. Um, there are plenty of people who would testify that apologetics played a role within their journey to faith and their continuing journey uh, of faith. Apologetics and evangelism, or apologetics or evangelism, I think hand in hand for me. Doug Grouthouse writes that the artificial separation of evangelism from apologetics Must end. The Apostle Paul serves as a model for us in that he both proclaimed and defended the gospel in the book of Acts. Jesus rationally defended his views as well as proclaiming them. You particularly see that in the wonderful section in Mark's gospel where you have the section of people interrogating Jesus and trying to trip him up uh, and the way in which he uh, very, very cleverly tends to turn the tables on them in that situation. Uh, Christian archaeologist Stephen Collins um, says this, and this is somewhat provocative, but he says that the biblical gospel includes not only the message of Jesus' death and resurrection, but also the apologetic evidence to support it. The gospel isn't fully communicated apart from the supporting evidence. I think it is true that if you look through the earliest proclamation of the church, look through what um, Peter, what Paul, what the earliest church was doing, as far as the Bible records it, in terms of spreading the gospel. Uh, that their proclamation of the way, as they called it then, before the pagans started dubbing it Christianity, um, their proclamation of the way came with a proclamation of evidence. You know, that Christ has now appointed the, uh, a man to, to be judge, and we are witnesses of this. Um, We have seen the resurrection. We are eyewitnesses. We didn't follow cleverly made-up stories, says Peter, but we're eyewitnesses. Beginning of John's Gospel, this we have seen and heard ourselves, the the glory of of God in Christ and so on. Apologetics is rational and it's relational. Um, Again, it's a, a false dilemma to think in terms of Are we relationally engaging with people in community and so on? Or are we being rational with people? Um, Rice uh, Brooks says, Christ commanded his followers to advance his message by the irresistible force of love and the power of truth. Speaking the truth in love. And the Bible doesn't see a contradiction or a tension between those things um, blogger Nicola Veal in a, a recent uh, article says this, I think puts it very well. Um, how do we separate the relational and the rational? People in relationships need to inquire, learn and build on what they know about each other. Relationships characterized by faultlessness are going nowhere. And we cannot trust others without testing their trustworthiness we should build relationships in a rational way and we should use rationality in a relational way. The Christian faith is, is, Christian faith is about relationship with God and like any relationship, this requires thought. So they go hand in hand. Nor <coughs> is there an opposition between apologetics and spiritual warfare. Indeed, According to the New Testament, apologetics is spiritual warfare. Um, It is part of spiritual warfare, at least. So 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5. Here we have St Paul, uh, I think, writing there about the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. That is, strongholds of ways of thinking about things. Worldviews, you might substitute into there. Uh, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, I think, is very useful and uh, influential on me when I'm thinking about the task of apologetics. There's a couple of quotes uh, from him and a fantastic sort of photo of him being like a French existentialist philosopher there with his pipe and a black and white photo. Um, He says the purpose of apologetics is not just to win an argument or a discussion, but that the people with whom we're in contact relationally uh, may become Christians and then live under the lordship of Christ in the whole spectrum of life. I'm only interested in an apologetic that leads in two directions, says Schaefer. The one is to lead people to Christ as saviour, and the other is that after they're Christians, for them to realise the lordship of Christ in the whole of life. Um, So it feeds into thinking about uh, discipleship uh, as well, uh, integrally. So here's my definition of apologetics that I'll unpack in the rest of the talk. You've got uh, an outline handout there, and we can circulate later a paper that I published on this topic as well. So that should contain most, if not all, of the the quotations and so on. So uh, I reckon a really useful way of looking at apologetics, at least, uh, is this. To think of it as the art of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality across spiritualities through the responsible use of good rhetoric as being objectively true and good and beautiful. So when you're engaging in apologetics or persuasive evangelism, whatever term you want want to use, you're not just asking people to change their mind about an abstract intellectual topic. You're asking them to consider changing their whole spirituality, their way of life. Uh, it's a big ask, and it's an ask that involves the whole personality, uh, not just their mind, um, so far as it's a, some sort of you know calculating machine that you can give um, evidential inputs and will spit out correct uh, conclusions at the end. So we need to look a little bit more deeply at these three aspects. What is spirituality? What is rhetoric? And at the objective uh, values of truth, goodness, and beauty. And we'll see that each of these uh, terms that we need to unpack has three aspects to it. So we end up with a three-by-three three grid of concepts here, and which is why I call it apologetics in 3D. So let's uh, think about uh, spirituality and, and how worldview fits into that. I'd like to introduce this concept of spirituality um, by thinking a little bit about the end of the uh, classic German sci-fi film from 1929, Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Now, um, you may not have seen uh, Metropolis, and if you have, you may not have seen all of it, because we haven't got all of it. It keeps getting released, and people find new bits of it. We get more and more complete versions of it. Um, But, basically... uh, in pursuit of the rather saintly uh, figure of Maria, uh, this guy here, uh, Frieda Friderson, who is the son of the oligarch of Metropolis called uh, John Friderson, uh, he stumbles into the underground oppression of the working classes and uh, comes to realise that his 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 world of of uh, Uh, Life in the Garden of Earthly Delights and so on is predicated upon the the poor downtrodden workers of Metropolis uh, who are fermenting a rebellion um, in uh, their feeling of uh, oppression and they want to rebel. And uh, one thing leads to another and the underground workers rebel and that ends up being very much to their detriment because they don't really understand the machines they're working on. They just feel enslaved to them and they want to destroy the machines. But destroying the machines... Destroys the whole basis of their civilization. It, it uh, ends up flooding uh, their, working, their their sleeping quarters, and all the children nearly drown. Uh, but John and Maria manage to rescue the children. And at the very last scene, uh, when one thing leads to another of the film, uh, we come to the sort of take home, uh, sort of political philosophy point of the film, which you will see made here on the steps of Metropolis Cathedral. Let's not be oppressive capitalists, um, nor, nor shall we have a sort of a, a communist revolution where we destroy everything in a sort of nihilistic rage because that's going to be bad for everyone as well. Let's all be sort of you know nice socialists. It's, that's the kind of political philosophy of the film. Um, but you see, you get this. The mediator between head, the planners, and the hands, and the doing must be the heart. And I think that um, says something about the nature of humanity uh, that resonates very much with the biblical uh, view of humanity and of spirituality. You have spirituality as how you're thinking about things, how you're thinking about reality, your worldview. Your heart takes various uh, affective responses to what your head believes is true. Uh, You make various choices, various commitments, have Various feelings towards things in your heart, and the combination of how you think things are and how you respond to them in your heart leads you to behaving in a certain way that that uh, reflects or is characteristic of your uh, your worldview and your um, attitudinal response to it. Yes. Just a, a
0: comment. I, mean, I think from one perspective, that makes sense. But in an ancient perspective and in a biblical perspective, the cardia, the heart, is the mm. seat of the will and rationality. Yes. Not the effective centre of humanity. Yes. So when um, we read the scriptures and talk about the heart, mm. they're talking about emotions. They're not. They're no. talking about the will. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that needs to be
1: Yes. And and indeed the indeed the, the 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 rational choice as well. So I'm I'm restricting the term um, in order to give a separate term for the, um, for, the, for the rationality, for the head here, which can certainly be included within that biblical language. Um, but I'm making the term narrower, narrower to cut down on ambiguity. And the, the heart, I'm, you're quite right, I'm very keen to emphasise that this is not simply or even at all primarily a matter of, of feeling. That's why I said it's about commitments, choices that you make towards things um, your attitudinal response to things not just your emotional response to things although you can certainly bundle that into there um, head hearts hands gives you a nice H H H alliteration um, I tend to think of it as uh, your beliefs attitudes and actions as another way of putting it Seeing your spirituality as about relationships, how you relate to reality. That would be how you relate to yourself, to each other, to the world around you, to whatever you think ultimate reality is like. How you relate to whole of reality through your worldview beliefs, your attitudes and your behaviour that flows out of that. Um, It's a little bit broader than what people have tended to talk about in terms of worldview. Although if you read the literature on understanding worldview over the last sort of 15, 20 years, you see that it's gradually become broader and approaching what I'm talking about by spirituality here. So uh, Ronald Nash, Christian philosopher, talks about a worldview in terms of a set of beliefs about the most important aspects of life. It's our sort of conceptual scheme. It's just about what you think about things. Um, David Burnett, more recently, talks about the shared shared framework of ideas, so it's a communal aspect to this as well as individualistic. And also, he talks about the way in which worldviews are incarnated in the actual ways of life of a person and his society. So there's actually a, a, a directly practical element to thinking about worldviews, and I'm kind of bridging that broadening that discussion, David Nagel talks about a vision about life and the world expressed through the human heart in the broadest biblical sense the seat and the source of the intellect affections, will and spirituality so he says life proceeds this is a bit of a mouthful but cardio practically out of the heart practically speaking, um, out of the vision of the heart with its deeply embedded ideas affections, choices Objects of worship and so on. Um, so he's encompassing here what I'm talking about in terms of beliefs and attitudes and adding in that that then leads to actions um, gets you to the way I'm kind of dividing the territory up, as it were. So you have head, hearts, hands is the, the easy way to uh, remember it. It becomes a self-reinforcing loop in people's lives because because you believe certain things and you make certain attitudinal responses to them, you tend to behave in a certain way, and that ingrains your beliefs and your attitudes and so on, you know. Because I believe in God and because I have a certain response to Him, I tend to do things like bothering to pray. But because I pray that tends to reinforce my belief in God and my attitudes towards him so they become self-reinforcing spiritualities which is why it's really difficult to get someone to change spirituality Um, it it is at the centre of of who we are Um, and you could also note you can divide this up into beliefs and actions And uh, faith actions and works, you could put this so faith and works, you could divide it like that. Now, of course, um, if you go, for example, to Mark 12.30, reflecting back to Deuteronomy 6.5, you look in the different Gospels, you get slightly different wording here. Um, We get uh, Jesus teaching that spirituality means loving God with all of your heart and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Some translations also, soul gets into there. Slightly different wording in slightly different places, all of which, I think, boil down to the same kind of conceptual idea of loving God with everything you are. (laughs) Um, And depending on how you interpret uh, the width of some of these terms, um, you can uh, fit them uh, together. But that's the general idea so this uh, concept of spirituality and uh, not something that I'm claiming to have dreamt up myself. Uh, I think uh, Jesus got there quite a long time before me. And you can view Christian spirituality as loving God with all of your spirituality, your beliefs, your attitudes, your actions and so on, and loving your neighbor as self in that context um, through entering a relationship with God through Christ. Now, different spiritualities will fill out that that generic schema of beliefs, attitudes, and actions in different ways, with different beliefs. But some of them will overlap with Christian beliefs. Perhaps different attitudes, but some of those attitudes will overlap. Different practices, but some of the practices will overlap. There'll be similarities and differences along a whole spectrum of spiritualities. But, you know, there's Christian spirituality and, and spiritualities... Just as much as there was Buddhist or Hindu or, or Atheist or Agnostic or Sceptic or Humanist or Marxist or whatever. Everyone under this schema has some kind of a spirituality. You see this structure popping up all over the place once you've got it in mind. So this is Acts 2.37. Peter's done the first you know, you know, preach uh, in Jerusalem. When the people heard this... I mean, went. When they believed the truth claims about Jesus and the resurrection that Peter was defending, they were cut to the heart. Their attitude was one of positive response to that message and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? We have certain beliefs, certain response. What are we going to do about it? That structure peeps up. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of Christ. There's a, an organic flow through these uh, concepts. That's Colossians three fifteen to 17 Philippians 4, 6-7. to 7. Present your requests to God's hearts, minds in Christ Jesus, etc. 1 Peter 3.15, indeed, the apologist's favourite verse. Um, Always be prepared to give, to give, do this. It's practical. Why do we do all these things? Because of our hope, with an attitude of gentleness and respect, because of and in the spirit of certain attitudes of the heart, on the basis of certain beliefs, answers, reasons that are given. Beliefs, attitudes, actions. So that's the, uh, the three elements of the spirituality bit. Rhetoric has three elements as well, classically speaking. Um, I should have a quote from McGrath again. Not the most flattering of photos of him, I'll admit. Um, he says, in the battle for hearts and minds of people, Christians need to know about rhetoric. Aristotle provides both a stimulus and a framework for more effective apologetics, principally because Aristotle wrote one of the first, if not the first... Textbooks on rhetoric called, cunningly enough, On Rhetoric. It <laughs> does exactly what it says on the cover. Um, this is meant to be a bust of him. Whether or not he looked like that, who knows? Uh, so, Aristotle defines rhetoric as the power to observe the persuasiveness of which any particular matter, sorry, matter, not matter, matter exhibits. So, rhetoric has a bad name nowadays. You'll talk about, well, that politician, it was all rhetoric. Um, Actually, we need to make the distinction between good and bad rhetoric. Uh, You you can't not have rhetoric in classical terms. You just either have good or bad rhetoric. And notice that Aristotle is defining rhetoric in 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 an objective manner here. It's not about uh, propaganda or the kind of advertising that has no relationship with the truth about the product. You know, it's not, let's get a bikini-clad blonde and put her on the bonnet of the car. That'll sell it. <laughs> it's saying, what well, actually is true, good, beautiful about this car, and how can we ha- best help our audience notice that about the car so that they see that that is really a good purchase? And, you see, and there's a world of difference between those two approaches to advertising, isn't there? One's, one's bad rhetoric... One is good rhetoric. Uh, In a famous passage in the rhetoric, Aristotle says that the modes of persuasion furnished by the spoken word, there are three kinds. The first kind, which is called ethos, depends on the personal character of the speaker, their their goodness, in other words. Do they come across as a flim-flam salesman or someone who knows what they're talking about and is trustworthy and reliable and so on? The second, called pathos, on putting the audience into a certain frame of mind or attitude of the heart, you could say. It relates to beauty. Uh, think of Tchaikovsky's Pathetic Symphony. That doesn't mean that it was a really bad symphony. <laughs> oh, Tchaikovsky, you know, you've done some good efforts, but that one was really pathetic. Um, the, the term has obviously changed its, its meaning. Uh, pathetic, it really moves you it really pulled the, the strings of my heart you might say etc and the third element logos which is a term you're no doubt recognised from the beginning of John's gospel in the beginning was the logos uh, on the proof provided by the words of the speech itself which is obviously related to truth so in terms of spirituality we'll naturally associate our beliefs are naturally associating with, with logos we're arguing about it, we're communicating the rationality of beliefs. Investigating the rationality of the beliefs of alternative spiritualities and so on. Um, the attitudes, the, the pathos element communicates this. The actions, well, in terms of rhetoric, the, the ethos. Uh, what kind of lifestyle does this lead to? Is it a good life that I can respect that I might be interested in Pascalian terms, might I at least wish that that way of life were grounded in truth, such that I'm interested in seeing whether or not it is. You know, I don't want. I'm not. I don't want to just choose my spirituality by does it work for me, in that very kind of postmodern way, but I'm not uninterested in whether or not it's livable. Obviously. So, uh, Paul and Colossians four five to six have an intuitive grasp of this Aristotelian schema he says when you're with unbelievers always make good use of the time be pleasant, have good ethos and hold their interest pathos when you speak the message choose your words carefully and be ready to give answers to anyone who asks you questions very reminiscent of 1 Peter 3.15 August so he mentions the same elements in the same order that Aristotle mentions them although he doesn't mention them by name Um, But this is the sort of um, the intellectual air of uh, the first century uh, world that Paul is living in. So back to 1 Peter 3.15, of course, these things will relate to Logos, Pathos, Ethos as well. And that's the three elements of rhetoric. Now, you've already seen that I already mentioned in that quote from Aristotle how that relates to to, um, what the medieval scholastic philosophers would have called the transcendental values. Values that transcend the differences between categories of things, disciplines and so on, that you can judge anything against. The categories of truth, goodness and beauty. Um, John Cottingham, um, British Christian philosopher, In a recent article, notes that to everyone's surprise, the increasing consensus among philosophers today is that some kind of objectivism of truth and of value is correct. So, when Richard Dawkins says there's this exclusive distinction between matters of fact and matters of value, that he, you know, don't even mean anything for him, he's um, swimming against the tide. Another way Cotton expresses this. He says, truth, beauty and goodness carry with them a sense of requirement or demand. The true is that which is worthy of belief. The beautiful is that which is worthy of admiration. And the good is that which is worthy of choice. So what unites these is this, this sense of worthiness, of of Mattering of having a weight of value that attaches to these things, and Paul in Philippians 4 8 certainly doesn't write like a postmodern subjectivist. Um, and if finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever you know, whatever works for you, <laughs> brothers and sisters, you know, whatever is true. Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is, is good. Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. Now, no, it's not whatever you do admire. For, for any ancient, uh, the, the question, well, you do admire it, but are you right to admire it? Would have made sense as a question. Are you? Does it deserve your admiration would have been a question that made sense within a certain postmodern circles today people act as if as if at least that's a question that doesn't make sense at least when they're thinking about their postmodern philosophy but the objectivity of of truth beauty and goodness that these are values that have a facticity about them Against that scientific distinction between facts and values, in a pre-modern biblical worldview, truth and beauty and goodness uh, have an objective dimension to them. However much there is on our side of things, a subjective uh, capacity or lack of capacity to appreciate those things, to know the truth. You know, we're finite, fallen. And we can make mistakes. We don't know all the truth, but the truth is there to be to be known. I can make moral mistakes, I can be wrong in my moral decisions, but that's only because there's a right way of making the moral decisions that I can get wrong. If there, if there is no factor of the matter, I can't get it wrong. I can never be mistaken in my moral views. It's only by having a, 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 an understanding of these things as objective realities to be discovered rather than invented that you can be humble before them. Um, you end up with, I love this diagram one day in the airport in Norway when I've been thinking about these different subjects um, it suddenly all clicked together for me and I went aha, they all relate to each other, there'll be a 3 by 3 grid, it'll be your spirituality in terms of your beliefs and attitudes and actions that are communicated through the classical rhetoric elements of logos pathos and ethos which you of course want to judge by the objective standards of whether or not they're true, beautiful and good ha ha, eureka, you see Uh, And that then is a grid that I have found quite useful in, as I say, going through everything from um, film analysis, engagement, through to thinking about preaching, to apologetics, to whatever. So, with that background in mind, this definition now hopefully resonates more, makes more sense. Apologetics is the art of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality across spiritualities, through the responsible use of rhetoric as being objectively true, good, and beautiful. This should not be placed upon us, or other Christians, as a grievous burden to be borne. Uh, I know we're called to take up our cross, and that doing apologetics can involve suffering. Uh, you're probably thinking that to yourself at the end of this talk after lunch but it should be a weighty joy, I think more than a grievous burden Uh, apologetics isn't merely an act of loving service to God and neighbour, although it is that I think that should be the primary motivation for it Mark 12.30, 1 Peter 3.15 but it's also something that's good for your own spiritual maturity I think I talked a little bit about how this feeds into an understanding of, of discipleship. Um, just as spiritual maturity produces an enthusiasm for apologetics, so an enthusiasm for apologetics should lead to greater spiritual maturity, I think. Have a look at Colossians 4, 4-6. to Fantastic um, summing up here from Alistair McGrath, from his book The Passionate Intellect. Um, I really resonate with this. He, he says, we, we cannot allow Christ to reign in our hearts if he does not also guide our thinking. Indeed, as we we mentioned, biblically speaking, that sort of opposition wouldn't really have come to mind. The discipleship of the mind is just as important as any other part of the process by which we grow in our faith. We must see ourselves as standard bearers for the spiritual, ethical, imaginative, and intellectual vitality of the Christian faith, working out why we believe that certain things are true and what difference they make to the way we live our lives. Above all, we must expand our vision of the Christian gospel. Apologetics involves enabling people to glimpse something of the glory and beauty of God through that responsible use of rhetoric, that objective sense of rhetoric. True apologetics engages not only the mind, but also the the heart, in modern terminology. And we impoverish the gospel if we neglect the impact it has on all of our God-given faculties. We're thus called upon to demonstrate and embody the true, the beauty and goodness of faith. Um, So it's not something that can be approached as an abstract intellectual issue out there that I deal with. It's something that is actually calling me to participate in it in the process of my discipleship to Christ, of being an ambassador to Christ, and that I'm calling other people um, to engage with, um, ultimately to engage with Christ through that process. So, having done the, uh, the abstract, the theoretical, um, I'm convinced as a philosopher that, that theory is very practical. So uh, five just practical suggestions that come to mind. Um, it would be very practical to, to study and pray, uh, to do Bible study groups or whatever on some of these relevant scriptures that I've that I've mentioned throughout the talk. Um, perhaps there would be a study on the relationship between faith and reason and how new atheists have got it all wrong, you know, something like that. Um, to foster appropriate openness about doubts and questions concerning the truth, goodness, and beauty of Christianity, um, to, to foster in our communities permission to ask real, honest questions about things uh, and not to try and squelch those questions, questions because they're seen as, 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 as dangerous or unsettling, but to see them as, as opportunities for maturing in discipleship to Christ. As opportunities to spur us to, to help one another, carry one another's intellectual burdens, as, as well as our more day-to-day prosaic burdens. And that command in scripture to help you know, carry one another's burdens, there's an implication of that command in as much as I, I, I am incapable of helping you to carry your burdens if you don't share with me what they are. So there's something there about, about the security of, of sharing amongst ourselves. You know, I've been reading this story in the Old Testament, and, and it seems really problematical. Why did God behave that way? Or how do you understand this? Or how does this apply today? Or you know, is Richard Dawkins right when he you know, says that science can explain where the universe came from when you don't need God? Or, or what, whatever. Uh, As Francis Schaeffer put it, and it's a very clever way of putting it, he says, we should always seek honest answers to honest questions. Now, of course, there are dishonest questions. We know from engaging with There are questions that are the smokescreen. They're the questions that you've hardly started answering before the next five questions have been launched at you as a smokescreen to say, I'm not really engaging with this. (laughs) What about that? Oh, but what about this? What about the other? What about this? if that's where the conversation going, you, you, you build up this sense that this is not a, an, an honest inquiry. Um, we are to give uh, 1, 2, 3, 15 answers to those who ask us but honest questions. But there are honest questions and we have honest questions if we're honest with ourselves just as much as other people do. Uh, learn without ceasing at an appropriate level for us in both theory and practice. There's, there's a, a whole you know the resources that are available today uh, at a touch of a button, let alone clicking onto Amazon to buy a book, but going onto websites, the videos, the YouTube debates, etc., that are out there. If you're discerning in the sources you go to, uh, the podcasts you can listen to whilst walking the dog, etc. Um, very good. And wisely put yourself in a position to give your apologia for the hope that's in you to those who ask take and create opportunities to dialogue with non-Christians when Luke is describing what St Paul did in Athens he doesn't say St Paul took with him a soapbox and a loud hailer went to the market in Athens stood on top of the soapbox six foot above contradiction shouted at everybody who were passing by in the street saying you're going to hell (laughs) what it says is he dialogued with people. There was a process of, of listening and understanding. He clearly spent a lot of time looking at and understanding that culture, looking at their artistic works, the plays, the poets that he's able to quote in the Areopagus speech. Know, that involved some, some serious time of study and research and going, oh, there's a very good line in such and so-and-so's play that would really convey that point on a bit of common ground that I can use You know to set the Stoics and the Epicureans against each other on this particular point of philosophical theology. You know he, he put in the homework but, and the interest in, in the audience and, and engaging at an appropriate level with the audience from people in the market square through to the university debating society of its day at every level. And we have to find, you know, different people are suited for different levels of these things, different depths of these things, but 1 Peter 3.15 is a command that's given to all Christians. (laughs) And certainly I think Christians within church leadership roles um, should um, have an appropriate eye on these issues and the roles that they're playing out there in society and in the folks that we're discipling. Individually and, and corporately, don't, don't go it alone on these things. Um, we are the body of Christ carrying one another's burdens. There's a lot of resources out there. Um, don't chuck yourself in at the deep end on your own. Um, make progress with other people in community grand okay those are the prepared thoughts that i have on apologetics in 3d without having to wear any funny colored glasses or anything um so we've got a good um well we've got 15 minutes before tea time could, could we turn
0: yeah
1: so we can have some questions about this and then afterwards we can sort of open it up to sort of general questions in the whole sort of apologetics philosophy area just Hey, maybe with your <laughs> Could I me with
2: using this. One of my most uh, major doubts, I think, is that when I hear somebody describe the size of the universe and um, mm. how enormous it is and how uh, insignificant our world is. And you know, but we're not in, in previous times. I suppose when I was mm. felt challenged like that, I thought about uh, the person of Jesus, and that that's been something that has reassured me. Mm. You seem to be saying earlier that uh, you're not going to get anywhere uh, trying that sort of argument on a lot of skeptics. Mm. They're
1: not going to accept Jesus at all.
2: Is right. Um, Do,
1: does that, is that because they don't accept the Bible at all? Yeah. Or, um, uh, and often their their reluctance to accept the Bible, even at the level of treating it just as historical data, you know, let alone questions about is it inspired, is it inherent, you know, any of that stuff, just as the historical documents that it is, often comes from, again, the the, the prior philosophical beliefs that they bring to that investigation. So if you've got the prior philosophical beliefs, it's very unlikely that there's any kind of a God who could work any miracles. Or David Hume has convinced me that it would be irrational to believe in a miracle, even if they're possible. And then this, you know, your rebuttal to the, we're so insignificant, Claim is something like, yeah, but, but Jesus was the most significant human being ever because he was God and he was born as a little baby in a stable in a province out in the middle out of the sticks okay. Well, there can't be an incarnation because there's no God to incarnate himself, and even if there was, he couldn't incarnate himself because that would be a miracle. <laughs> um, and piling up historic, historical evidence for a Christian view of Jesus. <clears throat> probably doesn 't stand much chance of getting such a person to shift their ground where you need to go to is the root of the, is the root of the issue and, and say okay let 's talk about is there evidence for God um, before we, we talk about Jesus because your, your, your view of him might be very different if you approach that same historical evidence with an agnostic frame of mind or frame of mind of well there's probably some kind of God but how come you Christians are so specific about what kind of God do you think there is you know it's a very different question than convince me that materialism is false (laughs) or you know convince me that anything could be true so that's again about understanding where the person is coming from and meeting them where they are before you can move them to closer to where you want them to be is to, is to ask those questions and really find out what is the root of your problem. Uh, insofar as there are there are honest questions that you have, what what are they? Yeah. In, in terms of the, the the sort of scale thing, the the, the assumption underneath the, the the objection, and it is one you come across a lot. And interesting, is one Lewis talked about as well. The assumption is that there's some sort of relationship between value and size or location. And I think that assumption is, is plainly false. Because um, you're in the middle of the room, okay? I'm, I'm right at the edge of the room. Am I therefore less valuable than you are? <laughs> Um, if we swap places, do I suddenly become more important than you? Why? Okay. Um, you may have noticed, you may not, um, but you may have noticed that I'm, I'm larger than you are. Am I therefore more valuable than you? Like if, if that were the case, you know, humans would be less valuable than, than whales and, and elephants because they're bigger. Or so this this idea that there's some sort of relationship between size or location and and, and value just seems plainly wrong in our experience. But also, when you start invoking um, the massive size of the universe versus, you know, why are humans only here on this little earth in this little time frame of it, et cetera, et cetera. What modern science has shown us about the fine-tuning of the universe from, from the Big Bang... Is astounding things like, in order to have complex biological chemistry happening, carbon-based chemistry happening that our lives depend on, you need carbon. Where do we get carbon from? Carbon is manufactured in stars, which manufacture the carbon and then explode. I'm looking to you for, for checking this because I'm floss, I only read you things. The, this, the, they have a generation of stars that manufactures the carbon due to a very fine a series of processes that that made the atheist Fred Hoyle when he discovered this say the common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics much to his chagrin it's one of the fine tuning constants uh, parts of of the production of carbon and the star then has to explode to spread that carbon so it can then become part of a solid body like a planet on which you can have life so for, for there to be carbon based life you have to have had at least one generation of stars go through the process of being born and dying during which time the universe will have got bigger because it's expanding over time from the big bang okay so the 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 our being here in relationship to the the time and size that the universe is is actually related to one of the physical preconditions of our being here um, which is actually one of the signposts to the universe being a product of design rather than just here by accident or whatever Um, so I think a modern scientific understanding of of the processes physically speaking that are necessary preconditions of our kind of existence show that we, we wouldn't be here in a universe that was smaller and younger. So you can't invoke the massive size and age of the universe as a sort of negative point against us having value when it, that is actually integral to one of the signposts of the fine-tuning. You know, why is the universe even possible for there to be life in it when it could have been otherwise? Most of the universes that are possible would be non-life-bearing um, do you just say we were massively lucky um, you know it's a bit like you know, you know the cowboys playing poker in Dodge City uh, every time Fred McNuckles deals the cards he gets four aces we get suspicious of him and we pull our six shooters on him and say you cheat environment <laughs> every time you deals you gets four aces it's a put-up job. You're cheating. And he says, well, look, any deal of cards is equally as unlikely as any other. It's one particular deal of cards out of all of the possible deals of cards. They're all equally unlikely. It's just, unlucky." am <laughs> lucky. You know, that excuse isn't going to play well in Dodge City. <laughs> um, we instinctively know when you, when you see something very, very unlikely happen, that, that hits a, 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 a meaningful pattern, a pattern that you've not just read off the event, but one you know about independently. That is, in our experience, a trigger to saying, there's, there's a put-up job here. It's like, you know, if you were drawing Scrabble pieces out of a Scrabble bag, sight unseen, you tend to get gibberish. Occasionally, you pull out a short word, but that doesn't surprise you, because the odds are you'll occasionally draw out a short word. But if, like in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, whichever one of those books it was, you start drawing Scrabble figures and they say, the answer to the great question of what is the, you know, the great question to the meaning of life, the universe, and everything is 42. uh, Then you're suspicious that there's some sort of trick being played. There's a put-up job. You don't just say, oh, that's lucky. Uh, (laughs) Um, and that it, it's that kind of of, of uh, pattern hitting that this fine tuning of the universe exhibits, uh, and it's just by the very nature of that kind of physical life and fine tuning that we'd be in a universe this big and that old, So, Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Just just to build on from that, I don't know if you want to talk about the, you know the weak and strong and principle. Ah, That's sh- sure. What talking about and the strong- Principal, Barrow, Tipper is that the universe is encoded to create conscious,
1: intelligence.
0: Mm, mm. yeah um, now whether you bring God into that or not mm. is a real yep. point yeah. but, but it's a step along there, the road there seems to be an encoding <laughs> for life being carried within the universe as it unfolds yes, like it's yeah. Form. yeah
1: and particularly more recently if you read works by um, Michael Denton a um, book of his called Nature's Destiny um, very much looks at those preconditions for life that are kind of encoded within the physical parameters of the universe. So you've got the, you've got the cosmic fine-tuning, which is a necessary precondition, but, but um, then it's looking into more like, well, how far down does that fine-tuning go into things like the nature of carbon, the nature of water, um, the, the kind of elements, the way things are necessary for you to have three-dimensional complex replicating life. Um, the preconditions of that just seem to scream design. And that's that's one of the reasons why, going back to earlier today, Anthony Flew changed his mind. I mean, he, he for a long time said as an atheist um, that if the universe had a beginning, that would be a point in favour of theism. And of course, over his lifetime, the evidence of the Big Bang cosmology became stronger and stronger. Whereas atheists 50, 60 years ago just tended to sort of say, but it was always here what, what caused the previous state, phys, state of the physical universe the, the physical state of the universe before that but when you have a scientific picture that says there was a first physical state of the universe there was a first physical event you know, explain that oh well it was the previous physical event And oh, no, hang on a minute it was the first one there isn't a previous physical event to the first one so do you say well it has no explanation? All the other physical events have explanations, but the first one doesn't. Or do you say physical events have explanations, and the first one can't have been explained by something physical? What does that leave? <laughs> you know. Um, so that, that that's sort of one avenue of so-called cosmological argument. And then we also notice from big bang cosmology this this sort of knife edge that the laws and constants of physics walk in order for this to be a fruitful universe rather than maybe one you know, that expands and collapses before you even get matter coming into existence because the have
2: heard against all of that is that there are an infinite number of universes yeah. and we just happen to live on one of those
1: yeah okay so this is this is this is quite right a standard response to this is to say okay maybe we it's too much to say we were lucky So let's give ourselves a lot more rolls of the dice, as it were, and say if there were a whole lot of differently fine-tuned universes out there, that would make our universe hitting this life-giving pattern not unlikely because there's lots of rolls of the dice, as it were. But you notice that that objection is, is predicated upon saying if there were, then that would undermine the argument. But that's not enough to actually undermine the argument. You have to show that there are enough different universes, all finally tuned, such that it isn't unlikely that our universe hits this pattern. And nobody's done that. All they do is say, if it were the case that, then this would undermine your argument. Well, fine, but so what? You know? At the moment, you know, okay, if there were enough monkeys and enough typewriters for long enough, then they could, by chance, produce the complete works of William Shakespeare. So why is it when I show you a copy of the complete works of William Shakespeare, none of you think, oh, good grief, there must be a heck of a lot of monkeys somewhere? <laughs> because the rational thing to say is, look, all of this information must have come from a mind, and I say, yeah, but if there were enough probabilistic resources doing it without mind, they could produce the same result. That, just saying that doesn't undermine your, your inference to design. I'd have to show you the monkeys <laughs> in order to then be able to say, this is the, a simpler but still adequate explanation for that same complexity that you're invoking a designer to, to explain. Um, and no one has made that necessary move.
0: Sorry, just to think about the multiverse mm. hypothesis. I mean it is a quantum possibility for the fact that there are multiple pockets in reality. But I still do think that defeats the basic point. Yeah. They even if there is a multiverse as opposed to a single universe I still, that, that doesn't actually detract the initial question of what was before and how
1: did it happen. yeah, you know, yeah. in? If, if
0: you saw all the monkeys, you've got to say, well, <coughs> the monkeys there. That's right. <laughs> why are
1: there any monkeys rather than nothing? Yeah. Which is a different question. But e- even on the fine-tuning question, actually, on, on, on scientific versions that, that have the possibility of other universes, what you have is some kind of scientific physical mechanism that generates... That spawns multiple universes. Now, for that mechanism to be there, to be possible, to function, and to spawn different universes, such that it doesn't just you know constantly add infinite and spawn you know one universe that's lifeless again and again and again and again. You know, why different there has to be an element of fine-tuning and complexity to that scientific universe production mechanism that itself is indicative of design because you know why perhaps most of the ways in which a universe producing mechanism could function would be ways in which it would function to produce always lifeless universes so all you're really doing is taking that sort of indication of design in the carpet and I've got rid of the ruckle Boing. it's over here. You just it up a level from the one universe to the universe-producing mechanism as well. So it doesn't, it doesn't even really address the fine-tuning question, let alone the why is there something rather than nothing question or the, any of the other arguments. Yeah. Yes, sir? Really
0: I don't know if there is one that exists, but like a book of analogies. Mm. Because actually, if you're speaking to some like, an honest inquirer actually actually saying this stuff. Yeah. it's quite heavy, quite intense, But an analogy yeah. that deals with each of these situations that you're talking about is, is very would be is yeah. very effective.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't know if there is a book. Well, uh, I, don't, I don't think there is such a book. I, I try when I write, I do try and use analogies and so on. I, I use the pin pin machine to explain fine tuning. If I took your bank card, put it into the hole of the wall machine, entered a four digit number, and got money out. And you said, not only have you stolen my bank card, you've stolen my PIN number. And I said, no, 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 I didn't steal your PIN number. I just randomly entered a number. Look, any number, four-digit number, is just as unlikely as any other. Because it's one four-digit arrangement of numbers out of the possible set of numbers. I was just lucky. You're going to say, no, 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 no. You must have known it's so unlikely that I would have entered the specific PIN number that grants me access to your money. That's what's specified about that particular complex arrangement of numbers. It's not only that it's an unlikely number, but it's an unlikely number that's specified independently as the only number that will get me your money. That's like the you know, It's not just that things could have been different, so it's unlikely. It's that things could have been different, so it's very unlikely, and the very unlikely pattern that happens to exist is, the, is one of the very few set of patterns that would permit life to exist. So it, it's more like getting money out of your hole in the wall machine rather than just, you know, you can't just write, I couldn't just write a four digit number up there and say, there you are, design. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, that would be a bit like firing an arrow at a wall, taking a paint pot, walking up to the arrow, drawing a target around it. <laughs> saying, what a mass- well, I'm a really good archer, aren't I? Um, but but when you've got a, an independently known pattern and the target's hit at what would be long odds if it weren't by design, then you've got a big clue. Good, I
0: think we'll um, take that opportunity then to pause our brains and continue to the